Well, we are back in Mark <laughs> chapter 6. We're going to be talking about verse 7 through 13. I don't, want, I don't want you to be nervous. There was a lot of verses read this morning. I'm not going to go through all those verses. But for the next two weeks, we are going to go through all those verses. So this is sort of an introductory comments, or part one, I suppose, to this whole thing. To this whole thing. Now, as we've seen in the past, what Mark likes to do is start to tell a story and then interrupt for a moment and tell a different story, and then come back to the uh, first story again. And the reason that he does this is because the two stories interpret one another. They interpret one another. Who is Jesus? What is he about? What is he doing? Um, and, And then to help us figure that out and how to judge it, Mark introduces this character, Herod. We've heard of Herod. But now he actually puts Herod front and center. And so what's the point of that? The point of that is so you can compare Herod to Jesus. So this section that we're going to be talking about this week and next week is a tale of two kings. There are two very different kings here, two very different kingdoms, and the nature of those kingdoms couldn't be more antithetical because the kings couldn't be more antithetical. So next week we're going to look a little bit more at the kingdom itself. The kingdoms themselves. This week we're going to look at the kings, the specific kings and their agendas. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, this story, this is, is, is very brief about what Jesus does here. It's, it's very short and to the point, but this is how he's building his kingdom. The last time I was here, we were talking about the end of chapter 5, and, and they called him a carpenter. We, we realized, right, he is the stone that they rejected that is now the cornerstone. He is the great carpenter. So now what we're going to do is what is he building? And how is he building it compared to Herod, who inherited his kingdom, and how he's squandering it and using it for his own, his own pleasures? So this, that, this is what this is all about, is this comparison. And by comparison, we come to understand both the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of heaven better. That's my introduction to the introduction. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this, your morning, this, your day, your service. We thank you for your word. We pray, Lord God, that as we open it, that you would indeed open our our hearts and our minds, our very souls, Lord God, that you would search us, that you would find all the darkness there, and that you would use your word, Lord, to extract all of that filth and wretchedness and unbelief and fear and anxiety. Lord, you know how often we want to be like Herod, but you are making us like your son, Jesus. And so let us get a clear picture of him today today. And, and love him more, and, and, and learn how we may imitate him more. We thank you for him, and we thank you for this time together to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, the account of Herod's reaction to John and Jesus is inserted into the account of the omission of the Twelve so that we can compare them, as I've already said. Herod's execution of John suggests the extent to which opposition to the Christian mission may extend. Now, I left out of this last story. Jesus goes into his hometown, and he preaches there, and it doesn't go very well. Well, what Luke tells us is is that it's even worse than what Mark tells us. Because in Luke, you find out that they actually take Jesus outside to throw him off a cliff. That story of him being thrown, they're trying to throw him off a cliff because of what he's preaching, occurs in the hometown. So not only do they just oppose him to his face and call his mom a whore there in public, they actually, after that, double down and take him outside to chuck him off a cliff. 
You've got King Herod, and it's already occurred at this point, has taken John and put him in prison, and then from prison he's beheaded him. And so Jesus says, hey, guys, I I know that you've been with me. I know that you've seen all the things that I've done. You've heard all the things that I've taught. And now what I need you to do is I need you to go out and do likewise. Now, I don't know about you, but in the context in which he's doing this, where you've got people attempting to kill Jesus, people actually killing John, who, who, what was his ministry? He didn't do miracles. It says very clearly in John 10, 41, John the Baptist never did a miracle. He preached. And now Jesus says, hey, go preach. Would you be nervous? Right? Before we even get to the fact that you're not allowed to take any supplies with you, just the fact that he wants them to go out in this environment and do that work, uh, yeah, I would be a little afraid. I'd be a little nervous. And we have to keep that in mind. When Jesus is calling us to come and to follow him, he's not calling us to come and, and, and live a safe and happy life. He's not. The very nature of it, as Nate told us last week, the very nature of it is cross-bearing. The very nature of it is danger. The very nature of it is, is not the possibility of you dying. It's a requirement that you die. You're not following him otherwise. And, and, and so, you know, we can get into, we're going to get into a lot of details about how to build a kingdom, but, but the danger of it, the danger of it, is, is not something that we generally feel. Right? I was a Christian all week. Nobody attempted to throw me off a cliff. <laughs> right? We talk about the big bad government and all of its left-handed power, its left-handed tyrannical power, but nobody came here to shut us down. Right? We're not in China. They didn't arrest me. There's that Rain City Church. They arrested the pastor in December, and nobody has heard from him. Nobody knows where he is. And the entire church is pretty much all the leaders have been arrested, and nobody knows where they are. Now, we don't live in that kind of environment. And, and so we very, very quickly lose the danger of what we're doing. The danger of it. Because it's easy now, but what if they came and they said, you know, you, in order for to have marriage between any person who wants to have marriage, between a man and a dog or a woman and a bird, or a woman in a building now, this is a thing that happened, a woman married a building in Seattle last year. Don't even, I'm just going to put that out there. What if they actually came and said, no, now it's illegal to get married? What if they came and said, no, 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 you, you, no, more, no more Bibles? They go to Barnes and Noble and they take all the religious section out. Right? We, we don't live in an environment like that. Yeah, yet, <laughs> yet, and, and may we never. I, I pray, I pray for all of us that we would learn the danger of what we're doing without having <laughs> to be threatened to be thrown off a cliff. Because if you don't internalize how dangerous what we are, how dangerous this is, God will help you. If you ignore the fact that this is dangerous, he will, he will keep upping the ante until it is more and, and more and more and more dangerous until you get it. And, and I may, I pray, that he does not have to go that far, right? So I'm going to preach this part real hard <laughs> to avoid him having to up the ante. Amen, Amen right? I'm not going to shy away from this, the danger of it. <laughs> and it's, right, I got my coffee cup with the Bible verse on it. I'm sitting there on Tuesday morning. It's 8.30. The sun's shining. The birds are chirping. I'm reading through Mark. 
it's really hard to think that it's dangerous at that point. Especially when, you know, you send the coffee cup to the kitchen with the kids so you can get another one. I mean, it doesn't seem dangerous. But, but there is danger in what we are doing. Now, all, now what's happening here, has, there's been a lead up to it. Jesus said, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And if you've been following the story up to this point, I, I, I imagine the disciples are beginning to wonder when that's going to occur. He said, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He gave them instruction. When, when he took them up on the mountain and chose 12, he told them. He appointed them as apostles to preach. And I'm sure, I've, I've been in that position where you get, you get a little, somebody gives you authority and you're like, okay, when am I going to go and do it? Now seems good, right? No, look at all these happy crowds that have come out here to hear you, Jesus. Is it my turn to preach? But Jesus waits until they're, they're like, Let's throw Jesus off a cliff. And he goes, okay, now I'm ready to hand it over. Right? He's not going to do it when it's comfortable for them. He's doing it specifically when there is as much danger as there has been in the entire story. It's all led up to this. They've seen everything he's done. They've heard everything that he's taught. And they are ready now to go out. Now, we know they're not really ready, right, ultimately, to go out all on their own for good. So what we see here is, is exactly the way that Jesus instructs. He's, he's done a bunch of teaching, and now what he's going to do is send him out on one short mission, and then they're going to come back, and then they're going to discuss what happened. Now, as any of you know who have learned anything, this is how you learn everything. right? Someone explains to you what, how to do it, then you do it, then they grade what, how you've done, and then you keep going back and forth in this way until you've mastered it, until you can do it by yourself. I remember the first few times I preached, the way that it would always work in the old building is as Dean would sit in the front row and I would stand up here and I would practice, I would do my preaching and he would stop me and he would give me feedback and we interact. And it wasn't until much, much later where I was able to just come up here right now, right? This weekend, he wasn't, he's here, but he wasn't you know, here yesterday with me practicing because you get to the point where you master it. At some point, Titus, my son, learns the equations, and then I, we don't have to sit there and keep going over the same work. He gets the equation, right? We all understand this is how you learn anything. You're taught, you go out, you try it, you get feedback, and then you either get more instruction or, right, or you're just an expert now, and you go out and do it. Eric, when's the last time you had to get instruction on how to do surgery? Quite a while, yes. But you did a surgery this week, right? Yeah, see, this is how it works in every profession. Every profession. And sometimes you, you learn things to the point that they're muscle memory. Right? I, I, my father was a policeman for many years, and one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen is the way that the man in a moment can draw and fire a gun almost without even looking at what he's pointing at. Right? You, hit, you get this little timer, and you hit this button. Just, he does it. And what's funny is one time my brother... We were standing in his garage, and my dad didn't have his gun on or anything, but my brother hit the button, and my dad did it. And it was, so he didn't, even, <laughs> he didn't even know what he was doing. And, and that's what Jesus wants. He's going to do this now. He's going to send them out again. He wants it to be muscle memory. Because there is a little bit of confusion about what he tells them not to take. Later on, he says, no, it's good that you have a bag. It's good that you have a sword, even. That's good. So the lesson at that point, they've learned it. 
So I like, even before they have the spirit, even before he's really done with them, you begin to see that the disciples are really learning what it means to walk by faith. But they're not there yet. He doesn't want them to take a money bag. He doesn't want them to take um, an outer garment, which is like a sleeping bag. He, doesn't, he, he wants them to go out with very little because he wants them to learn how to live by faith. This whole thing, what we're reading here, is, is the legal establishment of the kingdom of God on earth, the church. Okay? The church is the mechanism by which the kingdom of God spreads through the whole earth. And, and unlike his counterpart, Jesus is very concerned about legality. He's not just making this up. He's not just sitting around thinking, you know, all that stuff from the Old Testament, they tried it, it didn't work, they're not very good at it, and so we're going to do something different. Everything that he's doing here is based on how, it's exactly what they were supposed to be doing in the Old Testament and failed to do. He's, he's establishing it now. The, the point of, of history that we are all currently living in is called the session of Jesus Christ. Now that word session comes from, it, it means sitting. Because where's Jesus right now? He's at the right hand of the Father. His work is finished. He's in heaven. He's ruling. What we see in this story is him beginning now to create a legal body with leaders that are going to go out now and establish his kingdom. His kingdom is, does not, is not without law. His kingdom is not without authorities. His kingdom is not just like a hodgepodge. It's not egalitarian. He has very specific things he's trying, trying to get them to understand about how the kingdom is going to function. One of those things is representative government. Right? Republicanism, none of us actually know what real republicanism is because we live in the United States and this country has not been a republic for like 200 years almost. The republic time was very short. But republican government is all about one authority investing another person with authority, being a representative. Right? We call them representatives in Congress because they're supposed to represent us. Do they represent us? No. <laughs> Congressmen now, do not. Right? When I go to Presbytery, because we have a re this representative government, I go and I represent this church. They call me Redeemer Mike as sort of a joke. Mostly because I wrote my name on a name tag one time and didn't put the comma in the right place. So it was supposed to be Redeemer Mike, but I digress. So what you see here is Jesus investing his authority in people. Right? He did not think his Godhead was something to be, as it says in Philippians, right, grasped. He didn't hold on to his Godhead, his Godness. He laid it down in order to become a man. Now he's walking around on earth and he has the authority to cast out demons. He has the, the ability to heal people. But he's not, he's not grasping it. He's not holding it himself. He's sharing it. Now, Herod, on the other hand, is taking his brother's wife. And John is telling him, no, you can't do that. And he's like, how dare you talk to me that way and puts him in jail. So you have these two kings. One is jealous for his own authority, for his own standing. One is not. Jesus has no problem sharing. He has no problem sharing. And what's, what's fascinating about this, which we're going to talk about another, never forget the fact that Judas is always in this group. So Judas is going out and he is casting out demons. He is anointing people with oil. He is preaching the good news of Jesus Christ 
that is either accepted or not. We're going to talk more about that. But you have this king who is not jealous for his own authority. He's investing it in other people. And so he sends them out two by two. Now, when he says send them out two by two, that ought, that ought to automatically echo in our minds. Right? He, he is start, he, he's, he's come to make a new creation. He's come to make a new kingdom. He's come to, to establish, based on the law from the Old Testament, right, the kingdom as it always should have been. He's making something new. And at the very beginning of the Bible, when God was making something new, what did he have? He had two. He had a male and a female. Now, imagine them standing there at Eden, looking out on millions of square miles of, of untilled earth, empty earth. And he says, okay, go and be fruitful and multiply. Now, how daunting did that, must that task have seemed? Okay, and, and how did they go out and do it? They went out and they plotted and they obeyed and they followed him. And, and generation by generation by generation, look what they have done. Right? So... There's an echo here. This is what he wants them to do. Go out two by two and colonize. Go out two by two and spread this kingdom. Now, I'm not, this is not a modern gospel. This is not a PC USA church. I'm not saying now that Joe and Joe go out together, right? That's not what I'm saying. It's a metaphor, right? There's a, there's an echo here. So you have that in the back of your mind. This is what he's doing. He's establishing a new world order. Now, let's talk about the fact that he's sending out two men together, right? Now, how much easier is it to work when there's someone else? Well, um, I have kids, and it's not always easier to work with two of us because the, sometimes my kids have no idea how to do the thing that we're trying to do, right? Uh, right? When we're chopping wood together, it's not exactly like we're working together, right? I'm trying to make sure that my, my wife doesn't divorce me because I let my kid chop their fingers off. Right, I'm trying. Right, I'm not focused on the work. Uh, and this is this is happens in our own home. It, it's so funny. Anne-Marie makes bread. It's easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Bam, done. She lets one of the kids help her, and it's like, are you guys done yet? Because it's been like three hours. But what he's done is he's equipped both of these men to together. They're 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 equals. He sends them out two by two. This is why in in all of the lists of the disciples, there's, they're always listed in twos. It says Simon and Andrew, John and his brother, because they always went out two by two. This is always what he wanted, because two men together can accomplish more than one man alone. The, the image of God in the beginning was a community, and it still is. What we are going out and what we are spreading is community, two by two. And it's unpopular a little bit amongst Protestants, but if you, went, if you go back, when, when the cross was first crossing the boundaries from Rome into, the, into northern Europe, it was, in fact, men, two by two, going and planting monasteries that spread not only Christianity but Western civilization through the whole world. They, this is exactly why. They understood, oh, well, let's, let's go into this part of Germany where there's nothing, and let's cut all the trees down, and let's, and let's build a community where we meditate on the word of God, and we pray, and we sing, and we worship the Lord, and then, and then oh, well, you know, there's, a, there's sick people now, because people have come here, because now there's a place, an established place to live, and so let's, let's do medicine. Well, the kids can't read. Well, let's teach them. And this is actually monasteries and monks, two by two, is how Christianity spread over the whole world. That's how it happened. 
Now, the Reformation happened, and what was reestablished at that point is a man and a woman. Right? Monks is not exactly the image of God. <laughs> right? We have to be very careful. Men working together is great, but a man and a woman, is re- that's the image of God. So what, what we can't do, though, is what a lot of modern people do is like, okay, well, now Dutch evangelism is what this is about. The monks had it wrong. Right? Joe and Ben going out all by themselves is not a picture of God. Well, we can't overreact about that and just think Dutch evangelism. If you don't know what that is, that means you get married and you have a ton of kids. Right? You're, you're trying to outdo Adam and Eve by filling the world. We have to have both kinds. We have to think in both kinds. Because what, what is a family doing? How many of you guys had kids so that you could keep them at your house with you forever? Oof, that is great. I love you guys. I'm sorry over there. But I'm going to send them out. I'm, I'm going to send them out to colonize. I want a world full of clauses. I want a world full of clauses if they obey Jesus. If they don't obey Jesus, Lord, just stop it now. Stop the fountain now. <laughs> I want to colonize the world, and we, all, we, we, we ought to all want that. Two by two, man and woman going out, obeying the Lord Jesus, teaching their children, raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, expanding the kingdom. But it's more than just that. Because we also have a church. We also have the church. And we ought to be sending people out. Now, I, this was a hard sell for me for many years. For many of us, it's like, well, you know, there's a lot of churches around. Why do we need to make more of them? Why do we need to spend our resources on that? Why do we need to expand? Right? we got a preacher. Why do we need more preachers? If we've got one already, why do you ever need more than one? I thought for many years, for many, 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 many years, that the idea was to just have a super healthy church. Right? Let's just make this church as healthy as it can be and forget everything outside of there. And then what do you end up doing? You create a little ghetto. Why do I always talk about not creating a Christian ghetto? It's because I was on the mindset to create, to create a Christian ghetto for many, many years. But what is Jesus doing? He's Right? He's not holding all the power himself. He's equipping men. He's giving them authority, and he's sending them out. So, so churches ought to be about that. They ought to be about that. Now, you know, all kinds of people ask me, how, how has this transition at Redeemer gone so well? And I'm like, hey, man, it's a good question. God's good. Beyond that, I don't really understand. But I've been thinking about this. I've been thinking about this. This was never Dean's pulpit. I wasn't really expecting to do this while you were here. I'm sorry. <laughs> this was never his. This was never his church, right? Why has it gone so well? Because he was always equipping someone to go out and do likewise. And, and what's, what's funny is, right, Nate came up here and he, he preached his third sermon last week. So, oh, well, you got Mike. Why would you train anybody else? Well, and, and now I'm training Jared to, do, to, to preach. Because that's what this church has always been about. Now, we haven't, including myself, always been on top of that vision. <laughs> but we ought to. I think, I think wisdom is justified by her fruit. Right? The, the proof is in the pudding. Can a tiny church with limited resources produce more preachers? Can it expand the ministry? Can it grow beyond its tiny borders? It can, and it ought to. And we ought to all be behind that mission. 
right, we have this opportunity to have this space next door. One of the things I didn't even think of, Jared, Jared said it, is we could have a place there so that he doesn't have to go all the way to Northwest University to study in the library there. He doesn't have to sift through all those books and try to find some that are good enough to use. We can get all the books we need, and we have it right here. Why not? Why not? This is what the Lord did. He, he, he equips men, and he invests them with authority, and he doesn't hold it all back. When I first came here, there was one deacon. In fact, he's here today. Raise your hand, Jack. There he is. Jack's in the back. He was the deacon. How many deacons do we have now? Raise your hand if you're a deacon. We're expanding the ministry. This is the point. And if you guys haven't noticed, and I think you have, this is actually what this church is all about. So we need to pray about that and think about that and be intentional about that. And, and what is overwhelming is it can feel like Adam and Eve standing there at the edge of the garden going, man, look at all this, un- look at all of this work to do. And all they, what do they do? They went to work. Right? It's very similar for these disciples in the upper room Jesus has ascended into heaven. The 12 of them are sitting there. They're not really sure if people are going to come and arrest them. And they're thinking, man, we, we kind of wish it was like Adam and Eve where it was unpopulated. Because the disciples had the much more difficult task of going out and convincing people that Jesus was the Son of God. They had to take this world full of people and convince them of something that was very hard to, to believe. So we, we sit here and we think, right, there's not that many of us. And you think about Linwood, just Linwood. I'm not even going to talk about Sodom down there, a few miles south of us with the Space Needle. I'm not even going to go there. Just Linwood seems like a task that's too big, doesn't it? It does. But we go back. He, he is a carpenter. He is an architect. He's not going to come down here and shazam this world into Christianity. He's going to, he is the cornerstone. And, and the foundation are the apostles. And on top of that, and then is generation by generation, brick by brick, person by person, believer by believer, he builds the palace, the throne, the kingdom, the church of Jesus Christ. Right? There's an echo here of what he, another echo where he, he's telling them what to take and what not to take. And there's an echo that goes back to Exodus where God was telling Moses and them, right, eat your food with your, with your, all ready to go. Have your staff in your hand, be all girded up, be ready to go. And, and there's an echo of that here because there's an urgency here. There's a danger and there's an urgency. And I think we quickly lose both, right? Because, I mean, what do we, tomorrow is Monday. There was, there was some work on my desk left there from Friday that I'll, I'll, I got to do. Tomorrow doesn't seem that drastically different from Friday. Right? We, we go and it's like the same stuff. And it doesn't seem really like it changes much. And then all of a sudden you get an invitation to your 20-year high school reunion. Like I did. And you think, where does the time go? Right? I'm just sitting here reading this book and bam, it's 20 years later. That's what it feels like. I'm really glad I've been working out, by the way. I didn't realize it was my reunion. Not embarrass myself. I really just want Anne Marie to go there wearing a t-shirt, t-shirt with my picture on it, but she refuses. There is an urgency to what he wants them to do, 
Now, parents, I'm, I'm going to depress you for a moment because the task that you have is a timed task with eternal consequences. They take that little bundle of joy and they place it in your arms and there's God with a stopwatch going click. And you don't have a lot of time. You don't. It seems like you do. It seems like you do. But before you know it, they're 12 years old. Right? And the youngest one is three. Or, or my poor parents, the, 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 the last one turned 30. The youngest kid they had turned 30, and I, I mean, it was like we had to have like a little prayer meeting with them. Because they're like, again, where did the time go? And we know, like, you have a little bit of time to influence them, and then before you know it, they can drive a car, and they can meet girls, and they can go out with guys, and, it's, and you're like, man, if, if, if I could just have 10 of those days back, three of them, in, in, in some cases, two. You can just, you can remember, right? I talked to my dad. It's true. You can, you think of these two days, if you could just have them back. We have lost the sense of urgency. Now, getting out of your family for a moment, you don't have that many years on this planet. You really don't. And there are a lot of unsaved people out there. There are a lot of people who do not know Jesus. And do you feel a sense of urgency for them? Right? I, I, I'm usually too busy to worry about Joe Blow driving by in his car, going to whatever job he's got from whatever home he's got. I got lots of things to think about. And, and so I, I'm, not, I'm not here to burden you. I don't want you to start worrying about some mystery person out there somewhere that lives in Linwood that, man, if you could just go find them, how many unbelievers do you know in your office? How many do you know, right? You go to the grocery store, there's the same clerk. You go to the Starbucks for a couple of months, maybe a year, you got the same high school kid serving you coffee. Now, please, I'm not saying go there and hand out tracts. I'm not saying take a copy of the sermon and go and preach it to them. I'm saying, are you witnessing like these men are? Are you on a mission? Is there urgency and danger to it? Now, if you stop and think, yeah, there is urgency because this high school kid who's serving me coffee eventually is going to go to college and I'm not going to see them anymore. And so I have a very little amount of time with them. And it is pretty dangerous to start, you know, talking about these kinds of things with perfect strangers. It's very dangerous to start talking about these kinds of things with coworkers. It's very dangerous to start talking about these kinds of things with your estranged sibling because there's all that history. That is dangerous. Right? Those of you my age, do you have parents who are like, listen, let's not stir the nest? And you're like, <laughs> right? In, in, in 15 years, mom, you will be gone though, and then what's going to bring us together? This brother of mine. There has got to be a sense of urgency. You do not have many days. It, it, it says in the Word of God, number your days. Number them. Think about how many actual days. Sit down, okay? Even if you live to 90 years old, how many actual days is that? But, you know, bench-watching shows on Netflix on a Saturday is awesome. It is. You think, ah, whatever, tomorrow. Tomorrow. We'll, we'll get on that tomorrow. Next week, next month. We'll have that person over sometime. 
He sends them out, and there is urgency and there is danger. Now, the other thing here to remember that I want to point out is that he sends them two by two. Now, in the Old Testament, it's very clear. You do not condemn condemn someone to death except for two witnesses. So Jesus is sending these men out, and they are going to go and testify to who he is and what he's done and what he expects people to do because of that, and he wants them to condemn the towns that reject it. But he did not give us a law that he is not going to follow himself, and so he sends two witnesses. He's not arbitrary. Right? How how many witnesses does it take for Herod to put John to death? None. None. He just says, go get that guy's head for me. He's in prison. We're not going to have a trial. I don't care about the law. Just go get his head because i got to pay my pole dancing niece. Right? i got all these guys standing here watching me, and I'm either a man or I'm not. I'm a man of my word or I'm not. So go get that guy's head. And here's Jesus who won't even condemn a town without... <laughs> Dean, stop laughing. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He won't condemn a town without two witnesses. This is a just king. This is a patient king. So many people accuse our Lord of being impatient, of being harsh, of being unloving, of being a quick-tempered man. You look at the Old Testament, you're like, throw, throw pregnant women off cliffs. What are you talking about? You're like, do you have any idea in those stories, in Judges and stuff, how many generations of filth had been going on? And Jesus, right, if he, if he were a just God like I would be, he would just go and, and start over. But no. He's sending them out two by two, town by town. Go and witness to what I have done and who I am and give them the opportunity to believe. And when they don't, later on they ask, hey, can we, can we call fire down on them like you did in the Old Testament? Can we do it? Right? Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? I've, I've, I've always wanted to see sulfur, burning sulfur fall out of the sky. And Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't snap his fingers and that legion of demons comes like hurtling from the other side of the lake and just suddenly consume everybody like an angry, wrathful God. He says, no, no, no. Those who reject you, shake the dust off your clothes. And be like, what? Shake the That's it? How about I shake the town, right? Knock the buildings down. Shake the dust off my clothes. And this, this is something Jews would do. They would go, they would unfortunately in their mind have to travel outside of the Holy Land, and when they would leave Samaria, I'm sure Jesus and Joseph, when they came back from Egypt, what they would do is they'd stand on the edge of Israel, and they'd take their clothes and they'd shake them out. They'd get all that dust off, because we can't take the filthy land in with the clean land. And so Jesus is saying something very profound about these Jewish towns that he's sending them to, because if they reject him... They reject the witness of Jesus. He says, shake the dust. They're like pagan cities. But that's it. Don't don't do any more than that. Now, why? Well, because he's a video God, not a snapshot God. Right? Here's what I mean. You guys all know me. You know me. There was a moment this week, though, that if you just had a snapshot of it, 
You know, like one of those photos you take and then you got to shake it. And you look at it and you're like, man, this guy is no longer our pastor. Now, if you look at the video of my life, which people who you know one another, so you get to see, like, right? You get to see the snapshot in a context. You look at the whole thing. You're like, okay, that, man, you better repent of that on Sunday. But we'll keep him, (laughs) right? Jesus is very much this way. He sends these guys to the town, and he wants them to get a sense of how bad the rejection of the apostles are. And he says, okay, they're not going to understand it at the moment, but shake your clothes off. The Jews would be like, you're not crossing from Egypt into... What are you doing that for? You're in the Holy Land, you nut bar. And that would probably cause them to go back and do some thinking. And then later, you know, when they all go up to to Jerusalem, and these same guys later on Pentecost are preaching, because all the good Jews have to go up to, to Jerusalem, they'd be like, hey, look at those nuts. Those are the same nuts that were shaking the dirt off their clothes. Look at them. Now they look like they're drinking at nine in the morning. Because the people from these towns that they're in were people that were there on Pentecost. Now, Mike, come on, prove it. Okay, well, I don't know what you want me to say. It says all of Samaria goes up to Jerusalem, right? All the towns go up to Jerusalem, and there they are on Pentecost from all these different cities and all these different places when the fire falls and Peter becomes the man on fire. Jesus isn't like, hey, just go down there, and when they don't believe you, off them. He's giving them a chance. He's doing these parabolic things that are causing them to think. Right? So, so think, this is why like, you go to a person and they punch you in the face, and you're like, that was totally random. You're down on, on, in Seattle, and they punch you in the face. And you're like, well, here, you know, I got this bruise. Ma- give me one that matches. See, the there's this parabolic thing that Jesus is, oh, he wants, right? Imagine the, the thought of the person where you didn't come at them like they would have come at you. Jesus is all about doing these things that were like, that just get us off balance. He wants you to think a little differently, look a little differently, pause for a moment and ponder. Why are those guys acting like they're crossing from Gentile land to Jewish land? Why is that guy always opening the door for his wife? How is that guy with all those kids running through Whole Foods look so happy? Right, Eric? You you feel me, brother. (laughs) This is the kind of stuff that I, this is my favorite kind of stuff when it comes to like outreach. And what I and, and it's what I most often fail to do. Just be different because you are. I, I don't right. I don't burn the house down when the stock market crashes. Like, well, pff, there goes life. I was just we just watched a movie about the stock market crash and people are like jumping out of buildings and stuff. Could you imagine loving the paper that much? Because that's all it is, right? Versus the guy whose entire family drowns at sea when the ship goes down, and he sits down and he pins what? It is well with my soul, right? I want to be that guy, but I'm not usually, right? Because 
I don't have a sense of danger. There's not a sense of urgency to say when the tragedy comes, it is well with my soul. But I want to be. I want to be that guy. There's only one last little detail here that I want to pull out. And that, and that is this, the anointing of oil. He says go, right? Go by faith. Don't, don't take all these objects that, that you think you need. I will provide for you. Accept the hospitality of people. And, and, and then it says when they come back that they anointed people with oil. Now what is that all about? He, they healed them. Well, it's, it, it is what it says in James. We're, we're sick, are anointed with oil. The good Samaritan, after he's beat up, they take him to the inn to heal him. They rub oil and wine on, on his wounds because it, it makes them clean. So you're supposed to put oil on a sick person. But, but these are actually sick people in a different way. Right? The, the anointing of oil it goes back to the Old Testament. Psalm 133. Psalm 133, this is what it says. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron. So when they anointed the priest, they poured oil on their head and it ran down their whole body. And and in this psalm, this this is the beauty of the unity of the brotherhood. And so here you have these men representing Jesus, going in his authority and power, anointing, making a new priesthood. Only the sick need a doctor, and all of these people are sick. And those who accept it, they anoint. They anoint them. They make them holy, and they set them apart to be a new brotherhood. How easy would it be for these guys, with all this authority and power, to just go set up shop as like their own little cult leader now? Right? Apparently... And this is very confusing. Judas is as dark as it gets, and he's still out there doing all these things. So these guys could take all this authority and all this power that they're given and, and, and just please themselves with it like Herod does. But they're in, they're, they're, they understand at this point. It's, it's a good time to send them out because they understand. We're, he didn't hold all the power and authority, Jesus, in himself. He gave some to us. And now what we get to do is we get to go and we get to spread it. We get to make the brotherhood even bigger. The unity is is going to be even sweeter because there's more of us. They want to expand beyond their borders. They understand that this is the kingdom work. What does it mean to be hospitable? to the disciples, to the apostles. What does that mean? Jesus said, go out, and and, and where you are welcomed, where you are welcomed in, okay, that is where you're going to do ministry. Now, (laughs) Now think about what they're preaching, though. They're preaching, repent of your sins. So you go to this town, and the guy's like, oh, hey, look, you're travelers. Why don't you guys come over to our house? Then they come over to your house, and they're like, why are you talking to your wife that way? You should repent of that. Uh, Well, it was nice having you come. I'll see you later. Right? Herod is accused by John. What's he do? He puts him in prison. 
Imagine the humility of the people who invite these people into their home, and then they're hearing, right? They're seeing the power in the works, but they're also told to repent. Jews are told to repent. They had to come into contact with some very humble people. Right? It's very <laughs> I was just telling Jared, sometimes I get up here, and it is a little hard directly after the service to just stand around and have coffee with everyone because I feel a little bit like that guy who who's welcomed into your home, and then it's like, why are you talking to your wife that way? I feel like that guy. Now, and, 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 and the, the, the problem is, this is, right, this is allowed. This is what you all want me to do, right? Now, now go into someone's actual living room and try doing it, right? Everyone kind of expects me to go off a little bit up here, sort of the idea, right? But then you're sitting there, and someone is telling you a story, and you're thinking, um, have you read the Bible? And you want to ask them questions about what they're saying because they're telling you things and things that they're doing and things that they're thinking, and you're like, okay, well, I, I, I have a counseling session open from 1 to 3 every Thursday. I'll see you there. Right? But it's hard to do that, isn't it? Right? It's hard to be the one when somebody says the F word to be the one to be like, hey, you shouldn't speak that way. It's hard to accept people into your home who are going to start telling you what you should and shouldn't be doing. Okay, so we, we have lost a sense of urgency. We have lost a sense of the danger, and we have lost a sense of this. Because we're like Herod. We put people in friendship jail like fast, right? And then we put that relationship to death if they don't shut up. I have actually been in a situation where someone asked me to come and to counsel them and then called me a busybody while I was there. Right? And I was like, okay, we're getting somewhere. Right? We're getting somewhere. But when you're sitting in the pews with one another and nobody is giving you a microphone and paid you money to get up there and talk, this, I'm telling you right now, is probably the, the most difficult thing of all of them. To get welcomed into someone's life and then try to hold them accountable to the Word of God. Try to be open and forthright about what's going on in your own life. Right? Because you got logs compared to their specs. And that can usually do it, right? You want to get the relationship going. You want to get things going like that. And so you're like, hey, by the way, I'm struggling with blah, 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 thinking that this is going to generate some talk. And then they're like, okay, well, cool. It was nice seeing you. Bye. <laughs> you're like, well, that's awkward. So this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is what Jesus is all about. He's about urgency. He's about, he's about danger. He's about hospitality. He's about not withholding, but giving, equipping, building up. Right? And Herod hears about this, and Herod is all about what? Oh, is it, it's John come back from the dead. He's being haunted by his sins. He's full of guilt and shame. Full of lip service. Think about this for a moment. What did the people from Jesus' hometown, what did they say about him? Right? And here is Herod saying, oh, he, 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 could be, he, he, he could be Elijah. He could be a great prophet, giving him all this lip service. Herod has a higher view of who Jesus might be than the people in Jesus' own hometown. But it's not enough to just give him lip service because we're murderers in our heart like Herod is. And we're full of guilt and shame because of what we do. And so this, these are the two kings. These are the kingdoms of the earth. Herod, right? He said, he, this is the best part, he's not actually a king. 
In 39 AD, because of his wife, he, he begged to be called a king, and it created such a, a, a stir that the Romans got rid of him. It was like, you're just, who are you? No, we're not going to call you king. Who do you think you are? So they say King Herod here, and because, <laughs> because Mark is making fun of him. He says King Herod right in the text because he's mocking him. He's not a king. He's a pretender king. Everyone thinks Jesus is the pretender king, but the pretender king is Herod, who is so into the law, he actually built his, his palace and his capital city on an old graveyard, you know, so all the Jews could go there. They couldn't because they would be unclean just by going into the city. Right? Oh, John must be back. John's back. Uh, this guy clearly has power. This guy clearly is somebody. But, but does it cause him to repent? Does he go to him and say, listen, I, I killed your cousin John. I killed him for my own sexual sin. Right? This is, you have these two kingdoms, these two kings. And one is full of murder and guilt and shame. One is full of pretense and self-righteousness. And you have this king over here who's like, no, no, no. I've got a, the, the glory of the Lord is mine, and I'm going to share it. The, the holiness of God is mine, and I'm going to share it. I'm going to share it with you, and what I want you to do is I want you to go out and share it. Right? What's the Great Commission? Go, anointing the nations and teaching them everything that Jesus said. That's the mission of Jesus' church. That is the mission of Redeemer Church. Now, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> right? What does that mean for us, though? This is, this is, as I said in the very beginning, there are lessons that we have to learn. There are lessons we have to internalize. There are lessons that we have to get. And God is faithful and he will pursue us until we learn them. And so we better learn them quickly because we don't have a lot of time. We don't have a lot of time. You don't have a lot of time with those children. You don't have a lot of days on this earth. We don't have a lot of time in Linwood. We need to have a sense of urgency. We have to understand the danger of it. And we can't run away. We have to run towards it. Right? Take up the cross and follow me. This is, this is what discipleship is. It, it's getting the danger and getting the urgency and going. Supporting the church so that it can continue to grow. We can have more preachers. We can have more deacons. We can have more elders. We can have more space. We can have more churches. We kind of just have this lazadaisical Christian ghetto, easy, safe, selfish, white bread, middle class thing going here. And, and, and we have to let it die. We have to put it to death. Because we, we are doing super fruitful things. And what we need to do is withdraw from the things that are not fruitful, the things that are like Herod, and put more and more of our urgency and our energy and our resources in the things that Jesus himself did. Because that's, what, that's the ball game. Go and do likewise. That's what he wants. He wants your children to do it. He wants you to do it. He wants me to do it. And he wants us to go and convince the world to also do it. Well, the world's a big place, Mike. Yeah, which is why you have this cornerstone. And then you have a foundation. And then you have a brick by brick, and you plod and plod and plod, and that's the only way to do it, folks. It's the only way to do it. Do not despise the day of small things. Do not be overwhelmed by the circumstances. 
Don't worry about what you have in your hands or don't have in your hands. Obey him, and he will provide for you everything you need. But you have to learn the lesson. Be, it's urgent, and it is dangerous. But it's, it's following him. There's no other way. There's no other way. Every single day is a day where we get up and we make this decision. Are we for life or death? Are we for Jesus or Herod? Are we about this business or not? It's not a once-in-a-lifetime decision that you made, and then everything's hunky-dory. It is dangerous to get up and look yourself in the mirror every morning and say, okay, it's not about your kingdom today, man. It's not. It's about his. And you've got this day. You may not even make it to the end. You may not. And you look around and you're like, who, who can I equip? Who can I love? Who can I serve? Who can I heal? Who can I anoint? Who can I build up? That's being a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's exactly what Steve was saying. You have a decision, and it's an hourly decision, a minute-by-minute decision, a day-by-day decision, year-by-year, and what you find in the end is it's a long obedience in the same direction, and God in his kindness, you will look back and be like, look at what we built. We underestimate what we can, or we overestimate what we can do in a year, let me tell you, and we, we underestimate what we can do in five overestimate what we can do in a year and we underestimate what, but ours is the living God. And he wants you to have this mindset to not worry about all that. Just go and obey today. Make this decision for me today, for my kingdom. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for anointing us, Lord, and bringing us into your family. We pray, Lord God, that as we leave here today, that we would have a renewed sense of urgency and, and danger, and that we would, we would remember what we are called to do, and that is to not live for ourselves, but to live for your Son. You have uh, equipped us and, and empowered us, and you have blessed us, and you continue to grow us, and you are not finished with us. And, and I pray, Lord, for everyone in this room that we would fully and wholeheartedly and single-mindedly devote ourselves to you this week to do your work, to build your kingdom for your glory. And amen.